<laughs> oh, Serendipity oh, took over. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so hello to everybody. Uh, uh, Keyshawn just left, and your name is David or Daniel? I'm Daniel. Sure. Daniel. Okay. Yeah. All right. Welcome and and glad to meet you, Daniel. Uh, yeah, and thanks also, for having me. Robert and Parker uh, were already on. We've been discussing um, uh, Sangha, in fact. And so what Sangha is, is that it is the duty that we have to the Dhamma. And that duty is both friendliness and honesty. And so when we have both friendliness and honesty, then we can have communion and sangha and everybody gets along. But if we only have friendliness and not honesty, then the thing winds up being a mafia organization. And if we have um, uh, honesty without friendship, we have from, from politics to civil war. That we have to maintain that sense of friendship and, and often uh, we need to deal with these hot topics that you've raised in a really friendly and important way so that it's not an argument about who says this, that, and the other thing. But the question about uh, rebirth is a very interesting question in the sense that uh, while one is worried over and asking the question and muggling it and trying to figure out how to work with it and all of that kind of stuff, during that period of time, they're wasting their time and effort. That a much, much better thing to do with their time would be to stop being reborn moment by moment as the warrior who is worried about rebirth. <laughs> And to live in this present moment right here, right now. You see, the amazing thing is, is that the normal way of looking at rebirth is uh, something that's either deep, deep in the dark past or way, way off into the future. And in fact, either in the dark past to the dark future, so far into the dark that it, there is nothing to see there. And instead of continuing to struggle in the darkness, the better thing to do is just to say, there's nothing to see here. <laughs> there's nothing to it because we can't see it. That in fact, if it were the way that they uh, claim that it is, then uh, the path to freedom would be impossible because look how little um, uh, actual results of your efforts can be had to the past. You can't fix the past. Not only that, but you can't fix the future. The only thing that you can fix is right here, right now. And so the real teaching of rebirth is about right here, right now, let's not get reborn as that goblin or that devil or that hungry ghost or uh, reborn into hell. Let's stay out of that and not worry too much about the deep, dark future. If I can handle not going into hell right now, then I can handle not going into a bigger hell later. Robert, you got your hand in the air. Sure. So, I, hi, buddy. So, hi, guys. So, um, I think a good, great thing to add here would be the four imponderables, because okay. this is direct, straight Buddha Sutta stuff here. 
Okay, yes, the four imponderables are things that are not worthy spending our time on. In other words, it doesn't matter how much pondering you do, you will never come to a conclusion. So it's like what happens after death and uh, what, That's what the other I'm, ones? Well, one of the big ones is the, the argument between the Christians and the physicists over the Big Bang. How did everything get started? Because mm -hmm. we'll never know and we don't care. Okay. We don't really care how things got started. We need to care about how we can handle this right now so that the next Big Bang doesn't get started in the mind. <laughs> That's what's worthy of looking at because there's a solution to the problem of how to prevent this Big Bang happening. But the first one, who knows and who cares? And yet I've seen so many um, uh, arguments in big uh, halls at universities and also on uh, university campuses and uh, churches and whatnot between atheists and um, scientists and Christians arguing over, did God do it? And a better thing that they could have done was let's define God because it depends upon the way you do the word God that defines whether God did it or not. You can define God so that God was the first cause and he did it. Or you can define God as some long-haired daddy sitting on an uh, ivory throne that's falling apart up in the sky that looks more like Zeus and Greek mythology than it looks like any Christian deity at all. And if you have that kind of guy, which is mostly the Christian God, then eh, no, he didn't do it. He's just a figment of imagination. So that's the first cause is... Uh, the, the second one uh, goes, and in fact, that's the, 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 per, the point. The whole issue is, is that there's a whole lot of stuff we don't know. And that the whole point about the imponderables is, is that they're not worth pondering over. And that we have to get along with the fact that we can get enough, but we're not going to get everything. We're not going to know everything. We're only going to know just enough. But if you have just enough knowledge that's wrong knowledge and you go pursue down some rat hole looking down the knowledge and you don't find it there, the best thing to do is to climb back out of that rat hole saying there's nothing here now. I can't see anything. There's nothing to do here. Let's come back out of that rat hole. And yet so many, many, many millions of people live their lives down a rat hole of believing things they can't see. That's very interesting. So that's the major difference then between the teaching of the Buddha and the teachings of Christianity is they want you to take their their story hook, line, and sinker on faith without any investigation at all to where everything about the teaching of the Buddha is don't buy anything from anyone, not even here on this Skype call. You go look between your ears to find out what's there. 
That's the real teaching. And these imponderables are warnings that, hey, it's not a good idea to spend much time doing that. So let's look at the second one now, just based upon that first one. We're talking about first cause or cause and effect. And here we come with the issue about comma, that no one knows the results of comma, that there is action that is bright action that gives bright result, and there is action that is uh, dark action that will bring dark results. But most of our action is a cloud with a silver lining, or it's mixed. And because the results are mixed, we have no clue as to what the future is going to be, especially since there's going to be a whole lot of new actions right after that one that are going to impact that action so that mostly it's a cocktail of actions that wind up with a result. And we don't have a, a clue about that. But what the human mind will say is, is that whoopee, I'm successful because I saw that sequence of events. I followed that path and I wound up there. Now, that's real knowledge. But instead, we believe things that are not there and keep hoping and searching for things that are not there. And that's called religion. And wow, look at all the things that are involved with all of that. Magical things, power grabs, um, the thought I can get away with it because they don't understand the law of comma. You see, if you have the idea that comma, the law of comma just really doesn't exist at all and there's no such thing, then they can go off and do a bad action and get a bad result. And then they say, what the heck? I thought I could get away with it. And so there is comma that's real. But just because it's real doesn't mean that we know how we're going to get caught or when we're going to get caught. That's something that we don't have any clue about because the circumstances are too complicated to see off into the future. So that's the second one. We don't know the extent of the comma. The next one is that one that we were talking about before, and that is, is that we do not know what happens after death. No one has sent a message from the beyond, and in fact, we even talk about it as the beyond, and we don't even know that a beyond is beyond, and what's it beyond? And we don't know anything. All we know is, is that dead is dead. That's easy enough. We can walk into any autopsy lab and see that the doctors are there cutting that corpse open. You recognize, hey, wait a minute, that's just like me. I'm going to die, too. And that's all we could be sure of is, is that we're going to die. And we don't have a clue about what's going to happen after that. But isn't it then a marvelous plan to be ready for death when it happens? Or better still, be ready for anything. Now, I'm not talking about being ready for it in the sense of like a Boy Scout that's got a Boy Scout knife that's got this, that, and the other tool on it. I'm talking about being ready for it emotionally. Can you handle being dead and not reborn can you handle being dead and reborn can you be can you handle being dead and reborn as a worm can you handle being dead and be reborn uh, be reborn as a dead draft animal guess what that happens on almost a regular daily basis for most people that i know they are dead as a human being, and they are reborn in their mind as a draft animal doing what they're told to do. How many people go to a job 
doing what they're told to do, hoping for reward when in fact they're like the horse that plowed up his own pasture. So and to think that people could actually enjoy their work instead, but they don't. They do it because they're told to do it and they resent it and don't like it, but they do it anyway because they're afraid of the retribution. Like if you don't work, you don't eat and things like that, which is really stupid because I know millions of people who don't work and they eat just fine. We've got a whole core of politicians that are living like that. <laughs> oh, I've got a quote to share too. From, uh, so, Daniel, do these you know are who, great. Uh, I'm really uh, glad, Robert, you're popping these things up. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. So, uh, Daniel, do you know who uh, John Chai is? Uh, no, I don't think I do. Very famous Thai monk, one of the top two 20th okay. century. So he said. If you ask me, is there a next life after death? Can you show it to me? I will ask you, is there a tomorrow? If yes, can you show it to me? Yeah, that's right. He's actually uh, a step ahead of me. Thank you, Robert, for one step ahead. That leads me to have a giant leap forward, okay? So if you don't know what the future is going to be way off into the future, but you know that you can handle that, then you don't even know if there's going to be a tomorrow. The question is, are you going to be able to handle tomorrow marvelously, or are you going to hate what happens tomorrow? Because the tomorrow that you'll ever know is the one that's in your mind right now. That's the only tomorrow there is, is the one between your ears. And when you stop living in that tomorrow and start living in the now, that's all around us. And isn't it nice? And isn't it marvelous that we can actually be in the here now rather than a dead past or a yet-to-be future? All right. And so uh, that whole idea then of what it's like to be dead way off in the future is more a question of, well, what is going to be like to be dead tomorrow? Because that's what's really going to happen. Are you ready to die? If you're ready to die now, then that means that you can hot dig. You can have a good time between now and the time it actually happens. But if you're not ready to die, then every moment you'll be dreading. Here it comes. Here it comes. And I'm not ready yet. So that's another one of the imponderables. And the last one, to top it all, that's my favorite. Uh, that uh, is, is, go ahead, Robert. In there, a good example of living in the moment just happened in my household here. Okay. So my girlfriend was giving one of the dogs a lot of love, and the other dog was under my chair. And then he got up as soon as he heard that to walk over there and get love, you know, because mm -hmm. I'm busy with this. So, <laughs> so that's living in the moment. That dog, he knew that he can enjoy the moment more over there than right. Here. Yeah, we we that's have that word in Thai language that we use here in the house, uh, not just on a regular frequency, but it's daily, more than likely daily. And that is the word Icha. And the word Icha is actually the Thai word for jealous. And that we watch the dogs as soon as one comes in, the other is going to tag right along quite soon. Right. But if the other dog just comes into the room and leaves down and goes to sleep, who knows where the other dog's going to be? But as soon as that dog gets affection from a human being, the other dog comes. That happens right. many times with that. So what you're describing is a very common scene here. In fact, uh, 
Yeah. That's what Lucky is doing when I'm online with my students. She comes and crawls under the chair. <laughs> right. Rocky here, he didn't have to wait till the next slide. He just went right now. You know? <laughs> okay. So now let's go for the next uh, one, the final one. And that uh, is expressed in many ways. But one of the ways that is normally expressed is, is that you do not know the extent of the Buddha's mind. But literally, a better way of saying it is, is that you do not know the extent of the human mind. That no one knows what's on anybody else's mind because normally we're only concerned with what's on our own mind rather than actually looking at what other people are doing and saying and et cetera like that. So basically what that whole one is about is coming back to once you know how to wake up and pay attention and look at what's going on within your own minds and you really get that cleaned up. Then when you're dealing with other people in a clean way, you can also really see what's going on with them because of their behavior, but you will still not know what's going on inside their mind. So if they have really good skills at uh, camouflage, you may not know what they're, they've got on their mind. But most people don't have those skills and the psychologists rely upon it. That means that the manners and the behaviors of the uh, the physical body while you're even listening has a whole lot to do with the mental state that you're in. It is sometimes very difficult for people to hide the mental state that they're in. And so knowing one's own mental state helps you then to understand what's the mental state of other people, but you still won't know the content. We still won't know what they're thinking. That's one way of looking at it. But another way of looking at it is the extent. But first, we'll talk about Robert. What, Robert? Yeah, sure. So a little kind of question on that. So you know those famous sociopaths like Elizabeth Holmes or Bernie Madoff, you know, Jeffrey <laughs> Epstein, et cetera. Examples. You know, oh, well, yeah. you left off the biggie on the block. I mean, we got oh, a new no. star of that show. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, so what's funny about them is they're clearly very charismatic, but I feel when I watch them that I can detect something is off, but maybe I wouldn't if I were in the room with them before I knew that they were con artists. If I didn't know they were con artists, con artists yet, maybe I would not detect that. So Actually, we have to recognize that you did go through a process of that, just like everyone does, is that when we first see someone, we take them at face value rather than doing the effort that it takes to do a little deeper investigation, which always means collecting more data and more data and more data and more data. And we start connecting the dots. And as we gather more data, we begin then to see the incongruities, the inconsistencies. Right. And that's exactly what you're talking about. That the people right. who first meet Donald Trump, they don't have a clue. And he's very charismatic. But the New Yorkers who have known him and put up with him for years, <laughs> they have a different opinion. <laughs> right. Totally. Okay, so this is that ordinary kind of thing that we're talking about, is you don't know what's going on in someone else's mind. That takes a deeper investigation, and still you may not get it. Now, the next thing is, is that, well, 
what then, if you don't even know what's going on in the mind of other ordinary people, then how are you going to know what's going on in the mind of a noble? One who actually lives the Dhamma and knows the Dhamma. Ordinary people don't know that. It almost is the point that you got to be one to know one, or it takes one to know one is the, is the ordinary way of expressing it. That those people are saying, I'm a Sotapan because I was told I was a Sotapan, and my teacher told me all about it, and I'm here to announce that I'm a Sotapan, and, but I'm not really that sure. <laughs> okay. That means that they're not. If they have un, un, any insecurities or any insurance um, uh, assurance about it, then that means that they're not. Because the whole point about the soda pond is the one who says, man, I've got this so well wired, I'm ready to jump into it completely. And there's not a doubt about it. When the doubts are erased, that's what the soda pond is. And people who still have doubts in their mind don't really understand what it's like to be completely free from doubt. People who have fear in their mind do not understand what it's like to be completely free from fear. And so we call it fearlessness. And we can understand that fearlessness is what the warrior does when he gets on all of his armor and everything. is getting ready to go into balance triumphantly and is very sure of himself. No, that's courage. That's fearlessness. But what we're teaching here is um, being free from fear, feeling safe and secure. If if that warrior felt safe and secure, he would not be putting on his armor to go into battle. He'd say, oh, that battle's a piece of cake. Let me go talk to the guy. We don't need to go off into that kind of warfare at all. Okay, so but that's the fearlessness that the um, that the fearlessness normally don't understand. They think that fearlessness is, in fact, to go and act in, with courage in the face of fear, as opposed to be just... I don't give a flying rip. <laughs> and so this is kind of the way that most people then uh, approach um, rebirth. Rather than reproaching it in a completely unfearful way, uh, like, I don't care whether I'm reborn or not, it's completely irrelevant to me in this moment. That's the right attitude. But the wrong attitude is, oh, no, oh, no, I'm going to have to do all of this again. <laughs> That's me. Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, question. So, you know, the samurai, the Bushido code involves being dead to the world, right? And the idea is that the samurai, at a moment's notice, drop of a hat, is ready to die. You know, he's mm -hmm. ready to die. He's ready to take his sword out. He's ready to go no matter what. So, um, you know, Sam Zen and the samurai have been connected for hundreds of years, maybe thousands, right? So what are your thoughts on this samurai, you know, code with respect to death and fearlessness and how it's related to Zen? Yeah, can you talk um, about suicide? After, after his thing, of course. Actually, no, uh, there are Western stories. In fact, the favorite one is the 47 Ruin, who all committed suicide on the same day as a protest to the uh, unification of um, the Shogunate. 
But mm. another way of looking at it is, is that we yeah, but the samurai were already out of business. Once there were, the war was over, they're the warriors. We don't need them anymore. And so they protested the end of the war by saying, our war is over too. We're no longer samurai. We're dead meat now. Have a party. <laughs> well, one thing that's interesting about that, you know, a friend of mine was telling me that the samurai actually take a lot of the prominent positions of Japanese society to this day. Like the samurai families are still very prominent, even though there is no samurai. Like they have prominent positions in business and medicine and all these other places. Let us say like, nowadays the samurai don't carry the same swords. But to say right. there is no samurai is a mistake. <laughs> right. And in many cases, they do carry the same swords. <laughs> right. <laughs> but but what do you think about this? The samurai using Zen to be better warriors. You know, doesn't this kind of go against the Buddhist teaching of friendship? Actually, no. Buddhism arrived on the scene in Japan at the time of the change of the shogunate, and hmm. that all of the martial artists were left without any work to do, and many of them went into the temple taking their skills with it. This is why we have things like Zen and the art of archery, but now the archer's arrows are no longer intended to kill people. Now it's entertainment, if not sport. And that the entertainment or the sport aspect of it is, is can the archer do all of the moves exactly correctly and pay attention to what he's doing with great skill? So that once he launches the arrow at the instant of launching the arrow, arrow now the arrow is off on its own and the Zen master can uh, come, uh, archer can put his bow back and walk off the stage while the arrow was still in flight. And in fact, he's as almost a requirement. If he actually cares where that arrow strikes, that's not Zen archery. But it's up to the arrow to find its own target. His job was to launch the arrow, not to watch it strike home. Mm. But there's a whole lot to it besides that. But that's just a kind of an introduction to the point that, uh, and, and in fact, the reading the book on the five rings by Musashi may help a lot because Musashi was the, uh, gosh, very quick story about him. At the age of 10, he, 12, rather, he killed a samurai who was attacking him with the samurai sword, and he killed him with a stick. This is a 12-year-old, wow. okay? So, wow, now we've got places to go. All right. right. So he, he was the one that, in the heat of a battle, breaking the, uh, uh, one of the opponents' sword, he picked up the broken sword and held it in his left hand because it was lighter, and then wielded the ordinary two-handed sword in his right hand. And that's the story about the short and the long sword, and Musashi was the one who started that. Okay. Now, at the end of his life, he actually became a monk and lived in a cave and was known to have become enlightened. But the point well, I- that we would make with that is, is that it was his skill in swordsmanship and being in the present moment that was the major skill that allowed him to spend time in the cave just long enough to wake the heck up. 
to where most people can sit in the cave and not have those skills of being in the present moment. But you see, for a samurai, you're either in the present moment or you're dead meat. That's your choice. You better wake up and pay attention to what's going on because a sword flying through the air going to split your skull before I get a chance to tell you about it. Right. Yeah. Okay. And so that's the idea is, is that you've got to be so right here in the present moment, you don't have time to be afraid. Right. But there is no fear in this. This is immediate, quick action. This based upon number one, the instinct of self-preservation and number two, the skills that are developed slowly over time with the hands doing that repetitive action over and over and over again. And it goes right. right down to the posture of being able to get off your knees and onto the floor with your uh, sword in the air, swiping somebody in half while you're still trying to get up off the floor. That's why the Zen have the Zen posture that they do. And so the Westerners can't sit on their heels and have their feet flat on the floor without pain. So they have these little Zen bitches. But yeah. a real Zen master would not use one of those benches because he'd have to take them the instant of time to kick it off. So he just sits on his seal so he hasn't, doesn't have to worry about it. He's just raising up while he's putting his left foot on the floor as he's pushing with his left hand the hilt of that sword out so that while it's in midair, he can grab it with his right hand so that as he's taken down the step in his right foot, he's already swiping. By the time he gets into the horse stance, the, the blade has already touched the deck of the guy, and so now he's got all of those parts together. I know I've been through this. <laughs> I've been playing with this stuff for a long time. <laughs> and so that whole point then is, is that that whole group of people with that mentality took on the mentality of Buddhism because they had already developed so many of the skills. And besides, after the war, they had nothing to do and no place to go. <laughs> and they had all of these excellent skills of being in the moment. Sure. Okay. So, so you think? Yeah. now uh, let's okay. get back to, because there's another half of that last item, and that is you do not know the extent of one's mind means also that you don't know the extent of what humanity is going to be doing off into the future with AI and all of that. I mean, think about what people, even at the time of your birth, if look at the cell phone that you have today and recognize that about the time of your birth to have all the features of a cell phone would cost literally thousands and thousands of dollars and fill an entire room full of, uh, of equipment, much of which would not still give all the functionality of a cell phone. So who knows what the future is going to be? The question is, is whatever technology and whatever our society dreams up, the answer is, can you handle it? Can you take care of yourself no matter what happens in the future? Because we don't know what's going to happen in the future. We don't know the technology. And so this is what the whole point of it is, is that we do not even know the extent of the human mind and what the human mind is capable of. And you don't even know before you're enlightened what it's like to be enlightened. You don't know what it's like to be fearless when you're fearful. You, you know, I mean, that's that makes it as simple as that. And these are the imponderables. You can practice being fearless. That's what the Buddha would recommend. But trying to figure out what's going on in the mind of one who is fearless, you don't know. 
Even if they explain it paragraph <laughs> after paragraph after paragraph, a lot of people don't have a clue about what they're talking about. <laughs> Sure. Daniel, what you got to say now that we've talked about this, or shall we go back into rebirth? Because I think we pretty well kicked that football all over the court. Well, one short question. I was reading like the biography of Sariputta. You know him? Sariputta. Okay. I know. Yes. I know. He the was name like Sariputta. one of the disciples. Yes. I, know. I was reading this big book about the disciples of the Buddha, and it was talking about or like the suttas contain a lot of stuff about all their previous lives and rebirth and stuff. So do you just yeah. take all that as like a metaphor or like just stuff that was added on? Maybe it was just talking about what they did the year, the year or the day before they got to the Buddha and everybody else thinks that it took millions of years for all of that to happen. That's just because they don't know the extent of the mind of a noble. Yeah. Yeah, there's a whole lot, to be honest with you, there's a whole lot of really smelly stuff that's gotten stuffed into the suttas. Mm -hmm. Various reasons. Yeah. Mostly because there is an element of people who are making profit over uh, people who do believe in rebirth. There are, like, for instance, the Brahmins. Yeah. Especially at Varanasi, at the Burning Hats, the, the rich people from all over India want to have their uh, corpse cremated at the Burning Hats. And that's why the Brahmins are so rich, because all of those people are willing to give their land when they die rather than donate it to their children. And that's been a common occurrence in India for a long time. So the Brahmins are not going to appreciate our teachings at all, because then they can't control people with their fear. Does that so still apply good now? Reason. Oh, boy, does it ever. Look at every collection plate. Yeah. Oh, Daniel, look at every what, one of them. Okay. <laughs> oh, what was your question about suicide? That sounded interesting. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, what do you make of people who commit suicide, you know? For what reason? That's well, why I don't make anything. I ask and I investigate. Well, let's see. There's a lot of implications. There's like the implication of karmic. Uh, Forget all of that. What's that? the actual reason? The actual reason for most suicides is people feel so bad and so dejected and so discouraged that they don't see any way out and all they see in the future is su is uh, pain and more suffering. And so they say, I've had enough of this life because I don't see any future to it. That's the main course of suicide. And that's especially true in Japan, the number one suicide capital of the world. And it partly has to do with that Zen thing that we were talking about before with the ruin doing 70, uh, 47 suicides all at the same time is because they could not see any future to it. It was over for them. Well, people That's place like a moral moral uh, judgment on it. What do you think about that? Some I people say think it's wrong. That moral judgments are ordinary right view, and that those things are held by those people who want to run other people's lives. Okay, that's the popes and the priests and the governments and the politicians and everybody else is trying to tell you what to do with your life. Because if you're dead, they can't use you. They want to put you to work. <laughs> a 
I have kind of a fun question. So I've thought about this before. So if every every job was automated and there's no need for human labor, um, there would be a lot of suicides. <laughs> yeah. And after we finished with the burying all of that stuff, now what happens? <laughs> yeah, I which is your question. Awful. What happens yeah. when AI and transportation and uh, Uber is, you know, and there's no more jobs? The answer to that is you better be ready for it because it's going to happen so that can when it does happen, can you handle it happily and easily? Or are you going to fret because it changed and you didn't like the way it changed? Because <laughs> we're going to go in for a whole bunch of big change. And that's part of the teaching of the Dhamma is to be ready for it because things are really going to change. They always have. <laughs> they will continue to change. They're going to change big time. They always have. <laughs> uh, okay, so, so here's my one thing I've pondered. Just in a, it's an imponderable, but it's fun to think about. So I know that's the whole point is who cares yeah. about what happens in the future? The real point is, is can you be ready for it? Can you handle it in your own mind? If you have the right. lion's attitude of, hey, man, I can handle anything, then of course you can. All right. But it's still kind of fun but to if, chew on sometimes, right? Like, OK, so. If, You'd be if, surprised, everybody, at the number of things that Robert and I have chewed on together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so long as it's fun, rather than because it isn't fun. Well, go ahead, Robert. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. So here's my question. Do you think, let's say there's labor, that the ruling class is so psychopathic that it would kill people, just kill off the population? Or do you think, it would decide to just no, allow they'd do it from fear. They would be lives. afraid. They would be afraid. That's mm -hmm. why they would have the mass. I mean, that's why civil wars happen is everybody's afraid of everybody else. Hmm. So you think it could lead to a mass death event if or killing event? You know, if uh, they did, there was no need for labor. Oh, both sides are arranged for it, agree to it in advance and do their best on each other. Hmm. Well, head into the cave when that happens. <laughs> oh, you don't have to. Just stand across the street. <laughs> Just stay out of it. <laughs> well, actually, that's funny. My dad's asked me, you know, if, if the country falls apart, you know, in the next election, let's say there's a civil war type event that occurs and I'm on the island, what would I do? You know, and he said, let's say it's all the worst people out there. I would say, you know, I just make friends with everyone. I don't care. You know, just just be nice. You know, just be a peaceful person, you know, and you just sail through, you know. And that's who right. would harm a peaceful person? You know, that's because guess what? Those robbing hordes that he's talking about are going to be rampaging downtown Seattle, not out there on the island. <laughs> no. <laughs> so that's your that's enough for your cave. In yep. fact, all the robbing <laughs> hordes are not going to come to the caves. You don't yeah, have to worry a, about that. And <laughs> if they do, they'll come as a few, and then you can say, sit down and have a seat. Enjoy the moment. <laughs> right. <laughs> there really now is no place to go and nothing to do. What are you going to do? Leave my cave and go commit yourself? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he said, what if they take your phone? What if they take your food? I said, oh, they can have it. You know, we can they last can here. Go oh, right ahead. Yeah, here's more food. I'll eat. I'll invite them yeah. to dinner. We'll make friends.
Maybe exactly. next time they rob another house, they'll bring the goodies here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows what the future is going to be? But everybody's out there, like your dad, worried about what the future is going to be when we don't know what the future is going to be. The question that we should be asking is, whatever happens, am I ready for it? Is my mind ready for it so that I can handle things in the moment, even this being sliced in half? Which is another old Zen story, by the way, is that when the samurai came into, not the samurai, but when the generals of this, uh, of the shogun came into this particular what? All the monks and everything immediately bowed and scraped and got down, except for the one old fat monk over in the corner. The general immediately walks up to that old monk who is standing up by the time the general gets there. And the general says, you're paying me no respect. The guy says, well, what is there to respect? And the general says, don't you know that I can cut you in half without blinking an eye? And that old man says, don't you know I can stand here and get cut in half without breaking, blinking an eye? And that's when the general put his sword away and walked off. <laughs> There's a great story um, about this tea master, uh, Sen no Rikyu. And, and I don't know if the details are right, but I'll be close enough. Where he started, he's the founder of the tea ceremony in Japan, which is, you know, very ornate, beautiful ceremony. And I took a class on it, actually. It was a very interesting class. I learned about this guy, and at one point they wanted to assassinate him for some reason, and a samurai came in to kill him, and they sat down for tea together. He was going to kill him in the tea room, and mm -hmm. well, that's Rikyu, their favorite place. That's yes. why they're in that, in that posture. <laughs> yes, and so Rikyu, as soon as he saw him reach for his sword, he took the tea kettle and he dumped all the boiling water into the fire and it created a big steam. Mm. So he couldn't see it, no one could see anything and he escaped. And that's living in the moment, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. Then the, the samurai never came after him again after that. They said, oh, this is a master. Uh huh. <laughs> that reminds me of a story that I heard from the um, uh, Western monks at, at Wat Pananachat. And this is a story about Samedo. When Sumedho was the first the abbot of uh, what uh, Pananachat, that one of the junior monks did the job of preparing the tea by putting the hot water in the thermos and bringing it out to uh, Achan Sumedho. And the story is, is that Achan Sumedho um, picked that um, thermos up and immediately dumped it just picked it up and dumped it like that immediately, only to find the dry tea leaves coming out of it that the student had forgot to put the hot water in it. And in the picking it up, Sumedho recognized that there was no water in this. And so in one movement of picking it up and then like that, that took wow. him that long to figure it out. Okay, and that's an <laughs> that's example of sharp mind being in the focus, being in the present moment, which is exactly what we're talking about with your case of the steam and the fire. Yes. Yeah, and, being and, in the present moment. That's what the real teachings of the Buddha are all about, to be here now rather than being reborn into some, let us say, uh, victim that's going to get cut in half. 
Right. We cower in fear and then we get cut. That happens on a regular basis in all kinds of things. One of my favorite is, is that the people who are afraid of these dogs are the ones who raise the most ruckets with the dogs. The dogs will really come after you if you're afraid of a dog. Yes, yeah, and we've one talked of the ways about that. Yeah, isn't that amazing <laughs> that people just don't turn around and walk out? Here's my business, I'm finished with it, and I'm leaving now, dogs, and I'm not even going to pay attention to you. But if you pay attention to the dogs like you're afraid of them, boy, that gives the dogs a really big opportunity to have some fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I and, know. And, and a lot of people don't even know there's a difference between the sound of a dog barking when he's saying, get the heck off my property, and the sound of a dog who's saying, I'm ta- attacking you in five seconds. There's a different sound they make. But people don't pay attention to the, how the dogs talk, and so they don't know that. They just become afraid. In other words, they don't know what's in the mind of the dog. The dog is telling them to get off the property, and they're standing there afraid to death. They're about to get bitten. Guess what? They might be if they stay there. <laughs> right. <laughs> if they walk off, you're, you're, they're safe. Right. Well, it's very interesting to me how energy builds more energy, right? So if mm-hmm. you express the energy of fear, which the person that doesn't like dogs will do, the dog will then express the same energy back. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, boy, I'll give you something okay. to be afraid of. <laughs> right. Right. And it works at in every type of relationship. You know, I was talking. Uh, it happens exactly that way when people get stopped in t- by a traffic cop. If you show fear, they will behave with fear like you're a criminal. If you're very happy with them to stop you, they'll be very happy to be humans with you. Right. Well, here's people something who are the most afraid are the ones who are likely to get shot. And if you're in a demographic of people who are likely to get shot, then you're going to be more afraid, which means now you're creating that demographic. <laughs> right. Totally. And, you know, one thing I was I was talking about, you know, uh, with my therapist actually today is, you know, the Western psychotherapy approach recommends strong boundaries, you know, like, oh, like. I'm not going to take this. I'm not going to take that, you know, this kind of approach. I noticed with my father, you know, when I would do that, he would then behave more rude to me than Mm -hmm. if I was polite and respectful and did what he had asked, right? And so I realized that, you know, it's very, it's almost, it seems counterintuitive to the Western mind that if you say, I don't stand for this, that actually creates more negativity and more of the behavior you don't want than if you just do it and are polite and respectful and kind. And, and mm-hmm. that was a very, because I noticed when or, I would just be polite and respectful, he would then be more polite towards me and ask me to do less things, you know, and great. Precisely so. So this is the, another way of talking about this is in the form of jujitsu which is a martial art in Japan. But if you understand how the major approach is, is that when someone is going to strike you, you stand aside and step forward. Rather than stand up getting hit. Okay, which is normal or so slow that you're going to get hit. But if you're fast, (laughs) you step out of the way by sidestepping forward almost always to the left because they're almost always right handed. Or stand up and say, how dare you want to hit me, you know. And then you just did get hit. (laughs) 
rather than but here's the thing with your dad if you're already standing aside and stepping forward that's already ready to be friends i mean that's the whole point of the issue of the friendship is to stand aside and don't let them punch you so that you have to then defend there's nothing to defend because you were sharp enough to not be attacked you stood out of the way now, that's even more important to do that with verbal slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Oh, yeah. No, totally. It's just to stand aside, especially when you're listening to news broadcasts, because the broadcasters are there intentionally trying to make people upset. Well, you know, it's interesting because my conversation with my therapist continued, and I said, you know, one thing I've been learning from the Dhamma, you know, versus the Western model, the Western model is the model of individualism. You know, you look at the ancient texts, some of them, you know, the Odyssey, the Iliad, it's all about the hero, you know, goes and, you know, kills the Cyclops and wins. It's about me. And, yeah, and it's all about exactly, me. Exactly. And then the Buddhist model, the Eastern model, Taoist, Confucius, is let's be in harmony. You know, mm-hmm. let's be in harmony instead of being individualistic. And that is much a much better way to live <laughs> life, you know, than... Uh-huh. Can you imagine? In fact, it ha- you don't have to imagine. If you've ever been to an orchestra rehearsal, you can hear it. And that is, is that when they sit down to play together, they play the same piece of music in harmony. What does it sound like when you have a hundred musicians on the stage playing their own music? Each individual one chooses the piece of music he's going to play, and they're all playing. Guess what? That's called tuning, because they do that at tuning. You can hear that trumpet playing, not just the eight, ah, over and over again. No, he's all over the place. (laughs) Why? Because he's having fun. And when everybody's in having fun, it's noise. But that's what individualism is all about, is the fact that we live in a very noisy environment with a whole lot of people yelling at each other instead of us being in harmony. Right. And that's why music is such a beautiful, uh, let us say, medium of giving that message to people is because music itself has to have that harmony and that togetherness in it for it to be music. Otherwise, music itself is just noise. I know I've heard Stravinsky. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's funny because modernists, right? You know, like the French writers in the 1960s and 70s, they just went into the realm of noise where they would just write about complete nonsense because that is the natural conclusion of individualism. Because you're just a little... Yeah, that I've got to do something new and special with my music. The hell with Beethoven. <laughs> right. <laughs> I've had enough of his sweetness already. I want some conflict. <laughs> right. You know, I, I had a professor that taught a class on Derrida. You know, it was considered like the main, the most, one of the most important postmodernist philosophers. And he would, it, the class was on Freud and Derrida. And the goal of the class was to be able to read one sentence of Derrida, one sentence. So he would start with one word and then a second word and then three words. He told he said once to one of his other classes, my class, oh, we only made it through three words this time, this this semester, because <laughs> because, you know, it's like nonsense. You know, it's like uh, I mean, he's saying something, of course, but, you know, it's so over the top. 
you know, and, you know, trying to make a fancy point that it loses sight of actually trying to exist within a context, you know. Yes, that's that's danger of the Dhamma, because the whole way of teaching the Dhamma is to instead of making it uh, personal and too touchy, Mm. that... um, uh, and the sutta is number 139 when it says to teach in generalities, but to say it specifically in the language that the student will understand, which often always or often means that we uh, give grandiose examples that the student doesn't do. But he certainly can see that example as an example of smaller things that he does do. Mm. Mm. And so this is a way of teaching the Dhamma is that we don't want to make it too personal for the student. Because they always keep thinking that there's an I, me, and my in here. And in fact, the ones who are the most likely for that to be there are the ones who are reluctant in having their videos done on YouTube. What, me on YouTube? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. A lot of people respond that way. But they're they're responding to something in the future in their mind, rather than recognizing that nobody's looking at anyone in particular on the YouTubes unless they're looking for something. Right. But just the general audience, when they hear a video, they don't really care about who's who. They have to listen to a lot of videos before they get any ideas of personality and whatnot, and that's always changing. And so... Uh, is basically then that you're just talking about the fear that was already there that they bring up to talk about the videos where, in fact, it's just fear, not the video. Right. I mean, I'd say in my case, like, I like the private ones because I can go more into personal detail or about my family or friends or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why I like the private ones, as you can kind of go more, you know. Oh, you mean those that I already published? Yeah, I know about. (laughs) <laughs> oh thanks <laughs> actually i didn't do it parker did it <laughs> don't blame <Parker>. me <laughs> so there's another example of what we're talking about is blaming someone else rather than taking our own responsibilities for what we do And so um, this all wraps around the issue of rebirth that um, has happened to uh, Buddhism, not because of the teaching of the Buddha, but because of the belief systems that people had before they learned anything about the teachings of the Buddha. And if then they teach what they already believed and call it Buddhism, new people are going to get even more confused. And so basically that's what's happening is, is that the teaching of the Buddha is actually quite small, quite simple. He really only teaches one thing. But he doesn't teach what a whole lot of people want him to teach. So they just put the words of, that they want into his mouth and say this is something that came out of the Buddha's mouth when in fact it's just something that they wanted, which has got uh, actually uh, dangers built in. And so it's not the teaching of the Buddha. That in fact, nowhere in the suttas does the word rebirth ever appear. But the word jati appears often. 
And that word is what that will then translate into rebirth, where in fact, jati basically means the start of something. And we use the birth in the same way, like the birth of the blues. Sure. Or the birth of uh, Thanksgiving holiday. Okay, how did things get started? In other words, how did I wind up in this mess? Well, I started down this rat hole and now I'm in this rat hole. That's how I got started. And that's the birth of it all. And so that birth is part of the teaching of Paticca Samapada is how we wind up in the rat hole is because we took one step toward first we turned towards the hole because we liked the hole. And then we took a step forward towards the hole because we wanted the hole. And then we stepped into the hole because we were really clinging to the hole. And so now we're in the hole, and that's the birth of being in the hole. And this is a teaching of Paticca Samapada, at least the last half, that goes from Vedana, I like it, into Tanha, I want it, into mm. Ah, I got to do it, which is the craving, then into uh, approaching the rat hole, and then climbing into the rat hole, and to now we're in the rat hole. Mm. There's Pali for each one of those steps. Vedana, Tanha, Upadana, Baba, Jati, Dukkha. There we are, right in the rat hole. Mm. And that's so, the rebirth that the Buddha talks about, and not the rat, not the rebirth of taking lifetimes. But surprising enough, there is now old literature, 1,500 years old, that says, oh, the sequence of events that I just told you that takes a second or so, actually takes three lifetimes to them. But what are those lifetimes? The past, the future, and the and uh, past, the present, and the future. But that past doesn't have to be a past life, and the present doesn't have to be all of this present life, and the future is the, uh, all of our future lives. No, the past, present, and future means the Sankaras, and the body that we meet with this present moment. What did we bring to this present moment? And now we have the present moment, and that present moment then will affect the next present moment. Mm. Okay, and so that's how the mind works in the sense that when we perceive something, we make a, a in other words, when we see something, we don't really see it. We see what we understand it to be. We've actually percepted rather than just taking an in input. And what the Buddha is teaching is, is, let's keep taking input and taking input and taking input and taking input, and let's not do so much processing in the beginning, so that when we do process all this data, we'll have a much uh, better conclusion that better matches reality. Mm. But when we take uh, a little bit of data in, then we're much more likely to make a mistake in our perception of what we saw, and then that is what impacts us and starts the feeling. So mm. in other words, we take we catch a glimpse of that rat hole and we like it. And instead of investigating that rat hole and looking at it very carefully, no, we just go jump right down it. And this is the sequence that happens within a second. It does not take a next life for you to wind up in the rat hole. It takes you only a few steps, a few mm. seconds, and you're in a rat hole. Okay, mm. so that's the is other that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it, if you, it depends upon whether you're enjoying your rat hole. Most people don't enjoy the rat hole they're okay. in. This is what the, in fact, the whole rat hole is dissatisfaction. That's mm -hmm. the rat hole. We're in a state of not liking what happened. Mm -hmm. We didn't get what we wanted. 
as an example. We wanted something and we didn't get it, and now we're all disappointed. Or we wanted something, we got it, and then we found out that it wasn't what, up to the scratch that we thought it should be, and now we're disappointed again. Or we get what we want and we keep it and shine it up, and while we're shining it, we drop it and break it, and now we're disappointed again. Hmm. Okay, so we always wind up being disappointed by the things that we like. Mm. So we like that rat hole, and then we climb down it thinking that we were going to get something that was not in that rat hole, that we were going to go get pleasure, and we wound up getting pain. And the reason for that is because we were doing it ignorantly. We didn't watch what we were doing. We didn't investigate the rat hole before we climbed into it. We just liked it, and so we jumped right in. So that's the teaching of the Buddha, the teaching of rebirth, is that are you going to be reborn in a rat hole or not? The answer is, don't bother. Daniel, does that make sense to you? Yeah, so it's not like you die and get reborn as like a baby. It's like reborn into the next second kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Like, what are you going to do? And that essentially is right now, because the future right. is just another abstraction, another belief. Until it's right now. And so then it's, it's like the, the constant cycle of death and rebirth in the constant now. So it's kind of mm -hmm. like a metaphor. Or you can look at it it's, as a metaphor. It, doesn't, it happens quickly. They, the, the scientists are now looking at uh, a number of this like 10 to the minus 80th of a second. I mean, raised to the power of 80. Uh -huh. How many nanos of nanos of nanos of nanos of nanos do we call down that rat hole? <laughs> That's small. <laughs> okay. And so, but things are, and we're talking about now down at the quark level, down at the, the, um, um, the string theory quantum level. What is the quantum? They're saying now that that quantum is down to 10 to the minus 80th. And here we're doing our best to measure things at 10 to the minus six. <laughs> yeah, Robert, that's by the way, a nanosecond is 10 to the minus six. There you go. So I saw you for a nanosecond. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so and then you were gone. <laughs> and there you are again. <laughs> so, so there we go. So the question slash comment. So, you know, um, so I was talking today, you know, the friend of mine about how, you know, in the modern condition, the or the current condition, the contemporary condition, which is actually postmodern, um, you know, it it can feel like, you know, you're in, you're a boat in an ocean, you know, you don't you don't even have a boat, you're just swimming in the ocean, there's no land anywhere, you have to make meaning for yourself, and I was talking about how one of the benefits of the Dhamma has been that now I feel like I have a boat. You know, and I can steer the ship in this direction or that direction, you know, et cetera. And having this kind of personal philosophy, which is also a philosophy of investigation, um, can make you feel a lot more grounded in life, right? So I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, grounding is really good when you're out on the high seas with just a little boat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like the, the Dhamma gives you an idea of where the land is. Too. It's like a compass, right? Yeah, it's right under the boat. The water's not that deep. You're right. afraid of the water. Jump in. <laughs> there you go. Float along. <laughs> Next thing you know, you'll be another Jesus walking on the water. Yeah. 
nothing to it <laughs> yeah. because all that water was in your own imagination and that's a that's but that's the higher way that's the more noble way of looking at it you're still looking for a boat you sure. see because you're still in an ocean right that's somehow dangerous sure look around okay with the ocean Robert, you're yeah. not in an ocean there's nowhere near yeah you could feel safe you could relax there's no ocean there no boat needed <laughs> <laughs> sorry to trounce on your analogy but that's what we're actually that's what you were pointing at too right no he's, totally. a, he's literally on an island though right yeah this yeah. is <laughs> but islands float by themselves. I'm on an island. You think he's on an island? <laughs> I'm on a tiny little thing out in the, not yeah. quite in the South Pacific. It's actually in a uh, um, a bay. I'm in the North Pacific, so I guess we're neighbors. <laughs> yeah, we're neighbors. <laughs> yeah, but I'm the one that's got the uh, 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 the grass skirts and the hoochie Gucci girls. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, but it is interesting because so the reason I brought so, this up, and thanks for well, fixing my thanks. analogy there. <laughs> Go ahead. But one reason I brought it up is there's a way in which the Dhamma is a philosophy, and there's a way in which it's no philosophy, right? It's like the scientific method where you're just investigating all the time, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's a philosophy about philosophies, you know, in a sense, and and that's actually better than just a philosophy. Yes, exactly. Uh, oh, Robert, you left. That's okay. Um, Daniel, how are you doing? I know that uh, Robert, he likes to dominate conversations and I don't mind at all, but you're sitting <laughs> really quiet and I invite you that it's okay. This is your call. Um, uh, not much to discuss. Um, like about a year ago, I started getting into meditation and stuff. Uh-huh. Or, or long before that, like when I was a kid, I did a little bit. And when I was like 16, a little bit. And then a year ago, I kind of got heavily into learning about it. Mm-hmm. Okay. What did you, what's, tell me about it. Uh, or do you want to continue your conversation with Robert? No, no, let's, uh, Robert, we're going to go off on a new direction for a minute. Let me talk to uh, Daniel. So oh, go ahead, second. Daniel. Oh, okay, I'm back here. Anyway. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we're going to go off in another direction for Daniel. So hang on with us and let's talk with Daniel for a little while. Sounds so good. It was more like six, seven months ago that I kind of got into the awakening, enlightenment, seeking paradigm. And ever since then, it's been kind of an obsession. But I feel like. Uh, oh, OK, well, I can solve that problem immediately for you. You're already enlightened. Sit down okay. and relax and enjoy it. OK. <laughs> you don't need anything. You've already got everything you need. But you need to keep remembering that because you'll forget it and go off into something else and then you'll come back saying, oh, I wish I was enlightened and you'd forgotten that you were and that you'd forgotten to be enlightened and now you're forgetting that you can be enlightened again. 
And so that's what sati is all about, is to remember that you've already got everything you need, that it's okay for you to be satisfied. But we have to keep practicing that because look how long you have been practicing being dissatisfied. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so you've gotten quite a habit of being dissatisfied. That's Western culture for you. Everybody spends a lot of time wanting things they don't have and being just satisfied in general. Our, our society teaches us to live that way. Mm -hmm. And so now we have to actively practice not the meditation that you've been practicing because the meditation that you've been practicing fits in with wanting something and trying to get it and being yeah. disappointed because you didn't get it yet. Uh -huh. <clears throat> now we're going to start practicing that you don't need anything and that you're already okay and that you can relax and enjoy what you do have in this present moment because that's all anybody ever has anyway is just this present moment. Yeah. And do you feel secure and comfortable and happy right now? Or are you dissatisfied and want something? Yeah. And that's the essence of the teaching of the Buddha and is right out right in the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Noble Path. That we are dissatisfied. And the, the reason for being dissatisfied is because we want things that we don't have or we have to put up with things we don't want to put up with. And that we're not really wise about what we're doing. So that's the second noble truth. The third noble truth is that you can have the third noble truth right now. All you have to do is stop being satisfied and be satisfied right now. That's all there is to it. And all you have to do is follow the eightfold noble path to get there, which is basically broken down to <clears throat> just the features and also the... Um, uh, the prerequisites. So there are things that we do that bring us into a state, and then there are going to be features of that state. And the features is, is that we're completely satisfied and we don't hurt anybody because we don't want anything. But the um, uh, the the prerequisites, number one, is sati. The second one is um, investigation to look at what the mind is doing and then investigate that. And if the mind has, oh, I want to be reborn someday because this life's a pile of shit and I want a better life than this, recognize that that's an unwholesome thought right there. And we can throw that unwholesome thought out and say, hey, this life right this very minute is okay. And that would be a much more wholesome thought to have. And when you begin to have one wholesome thought after another, then you begin to feel satisfied. If you keep talking yourself into feeling bad, you'll keep going back into bad feelings. If you keep talking yourself into feeling good, you'll begin to feel really good. And that's how the Eightfold Noble Path actually works. And when you get yourself into feeling good really often, that means that now you gain the attitude of, I can do this. I, it doesn't matter what happens. I can handle it. Because how? Why? It's because I've been practicing the skills of taking unwholesome thoughts out of the mind and putting wholesome thoughts in. So when some unwholesome thought comes into the mind like a cop is arresting me, I can replace that with, oh, my buddy in blue has just arrived. And it's just a matter of changing our thought. So if I may invite you to chew on something like Robert did earlier, <laughs> <laughs> Please. <laughs> yes. 
I, I'm chewing on a lot of nicotine gum right here. Okay, that's good. <laughs> so, so what's the Daniel. deal with all these techniques and all these people who are like saying, you know, you got to like body scan for 90 minutes a day or you got to do noting or you got to do um, okay. body do concentration or any of that. What's with, with what do you make of all that stuff? All right. First off, let us say that with the Eightfold Noble Path, the Buddha taught one practice technique. And the name of that practice technique is Anapanasati. And that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa um, caused a stir when he said that Anapanasati is the only practice that the Buddha taught. And so it required a literature search. And yep, after a thorough literature search, nobody can come up with any teaching of the Buddha other than Anapanasati. And that we do Anapanasati for the fulfillment of the Satipatthana. And so a lot of people then take a left turn off into the Satipatthana Sutta and just dig around forever, not recognizing that that too is another rat hole. So, so I know I'm going to get some flack by calling the Satipatthana a rat hole because even I would argue with that. <laughs> but the way that people go down it in the sense of that's the its cadets is a rat hole. Okay. But we practice Anapanasati for the fulfillment of correctly the uh, uh, the Satipatthana. Now, when you mention things like uh, body scanning, that actually can be related to step three of Anapanasati, which is, is to examine and to know the body. But somebody has come up with a very, very high school formalized way of doing that when there is a natural way, and that is to look at what the body's doing. What do you look at? whatever is there the body scanning is oh no you're supposed to target the top of your head and get a good feeling and then wash down a little bit and then you do it again until you get pretty good at doing it all over the body and the answer is why don't you just get good at doing it all over the body right from the very beginning you don't need the formal steps but then some would say oh well formal steps like that is very much like doing chords and scales on a piano if you can't do the scale and you can't do the chord then you don't know the fingering and so the the answer is well somewhere in there there's a middle ground between how much of physical of um let us say formal scanning do you do and how much of actually just observation of what the body is feeling like and what it's doing especially paying attention to what your face is doing and paying attention to what your hands are doing as well as paying attention to where the emotions are in the body like in the chest area in the throat down in the gut they're normally relocated right in here but for other people they're located other places for instance some people will knit their brows and get things very tight and give themselves a headache when they're practicing meditation because they don't recognize what they're doing with their body while they're doing the body scans they don't know what they're actually doing if they could actually see that tension they just relax it okay so that's the basic answer to that question of why are there so many techniques is because there are so many the the buddha's answer to that is there were 10 blind men who were all lined up to touch the elephant and each one of them could touch a different part of the elephant and after each one touched the elephant each one of them came up with their own story about what the elephant is. One says it's a brush because he was on the tail. Another one says it's like the trunk of a tree because he was on the limb. Another one says it's a giant fan because he got blown by the... Um, another one says it's like a water faucet because he got the nose. But nobody got the whole animal. Anapanasati is the whole animal. 
And the Buddha invites you to do the whole of the Satipatthana with the whole animal. An example of the noting is just one part of it. And the noting is, is to see what's going on in the mind. And that's certainly there. But then they're missing the right effort. And that is, is to change what's in the mind and put something wholesome in it instead. So they're only doing part of the technique. Another example is the group that are doing choiceless awareness. They can see what's going on, but they won't bother to do anything about it, and they will get run over by their own thoughts. Instead of saying, hey, now that I can see that big thought's coming, why do I have to have it? Why don't I just change my thoughts? And so this is why there's so many techniques. Is also because, and here's something that's very interesting about people, and that is, is that some people get uh, some success with the Dhamma, and they get really, really gung-ho about the Dhamma, and they think it's the very, very best there is. And because of that, they're willing to teach what they already know. This was Goenka, that he taught what he learned about Buddhism, not all that there is to learn. An example of that is somebody goes to the doctor and he uh, has some sort of surgical uh, maneuver uh, on his arm while he is standing there watching. And so he goes home thinking that he can do that surgical procedure on his friends. After he does it a couple of times, now he thinks he can do any general surgeon on anybody because he once saw somebody do stitches on his arm. You get how that goes? That's exactly yeah. where all of these meditation teachers are coming from. They've been to some doctor's office and now they think they're qualified to do surgery. <laughs> and, the, and the barnyard is full of them. I think uh, and that's you, why it winds yeah. up being Western Buddhism. So what we were doing is we're describing Western Buddhism for you. A whole bunch of wannabes all yelling at the top of the lungs. I am, I am, I am. When in fact, they in their hearts are still wannabes. When the whole point is, is for the Buddha is to say is stop wanting things. Stop wanting to be anything. And then you can just be happy because you don't want to be anything. You're already okay like you are. Robert, what you got? So here's another imponderable for you. What <laughs> do you think Western Buddhism will be like in 100 years? The answer to that is I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> but, it, but I'll also add, but it's my duty to take it where it needs to go. Mm. And if I can't take it there, at least I can point it in the right direction. Sure. And this is a rephrase of what the Buddha said, because someone asked him, well, why do you teach? And he says, I teach for the benefit and the welfare and the well-being of future generations. Guess what? He was right. And he did, because we are the future generations of the Buddha. So here's another... we all continue to practice, not for ourselves and not for the that, but in the sense of establishing something that is so marvelous and magnificent that it tends to rub off on other people and just spreads. Sure. So... That's called friendship. And that's what we really sell is friendship. Sure. And honesty. Sure. Yes. OK, so sure. hang on, Robert. Let's get back to uh, Daniel. So, Daniel, we were we were talking there about it. Um, so at the end of all that, what do you make of like monastic life and uh, and sit down practice and all that? Is there any what's the point of all that then? 
Do you think people well, who are sitting down for hours a day meditating, what's, are they wasting their time? No, some people sit down and meditate because they like it. That's true. Okay. Well, let's say In these fact, people there's, that... There's the old Zen story of the little Zen uh, student comes into the meditation hall and there is old master sitting yeah. off in the corner, just sitting there. And the student comes over and says, Master, Master, are you meditating to become enlightened? And the old man opened one eye and says, no, I'm just sitting here happily because I am enlightened. Uh-huh. Okay. So that's one of the reasons you just sit because there's no place to go and nothing to do in this present moment is last. And so we let it linger by just sitting here with no place to go and nothing to do. There is that kind of practice. But very few Westerners and even a few uh, uh, most of the people in Asia are practicing to get something that they're tough. And they really are established in their practice and they really want something out of that practice. And someday their practice prints will come. Someday the common machine will walk into that room, hit them with Shakti pot and give them the bliss that they have been waiting on, but not giving themselves all along. But that may be 50 years of meditation. Why not go ahead and give yourself that bliss right now rather than waiting for the comma machine to do it for you or to you or by you? Because the comma machine, by the way, don't do that kind of stuff mostly. It's out there too busy catching crooks. (laughs) 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 That's why it sometimes meditators 50 years to figure out that they don't have to work at it, that it's easy now. There's nothing to do and never was anything to do in the first place, but they didn't have the skills to be able to understand that. But did they get those skills by meditating? Well, you're using a word that I don't use meditating. I would say practice Practice. developing those skills. In waking life or through some sort of formal practice? Both. Absolutely Both. both. Not one or the other, but it requires both. Why is that? Because any ordinary person has been out in society long enough to get his mind completely polluted with society. And so long as he remains in society, he's going to remain in that pollution no matter what he does to clean out his own mind. So there are times when he has to get away from it all so that he can actually see that what he was getting away from, he brought with him. And now he's got to get rid of it a second time. First, he had to get rid of it physically. Now he's got to get rid of it mentally and emotionally, which is actually the bigger job because over our lifetimes, we have bought into a lot of crap and a lot of lies we've been told about what things should be like. We have been ordered around and told what to do and we went along to get along. And now many of us just believe all that crap that we've been told. So one of the first things we need to do is to get away from the crap. And then we realize that uh, that we got to still get rid of the crap because now we're telling ourselves the lies that we were told all along. And once we begin to see that dialogue in our minds, then we start putting a stop to it immediately. No, I'm not going to fuss at myself because my mind wandered away from the breath. I'm going to enjoy the fact that my mind came back to the breath and I'm having a ball with it. So I don't have to feel bad when my mind wandered away. I can feel good. If I remember to feel good, because my old habit is to feel bad when I fail. 
you got to learn to feel good when we fail, and then we can fail often to get a whole lot done, do a whole lot of practice. We do a whole lot of falling down. We get really expert at picking ourselves up and dusting ourselves off. If we're very careful to not ever fall down, then when we do fall down, our face is in the mud and we stay there. So that's the practice. The practice is, is to get away from it all and get the mind clean, which has a two-step process. And that is both friendliness with our own mind and um, honesty. We have to really be honest with ourselves. And here we've been lying to ourselves because we were taught to do that with society. So now we have to stop lying to ourselves and start looking at what's going on, but we do so in a friendly way so that there is no retribution or no danger in seeing the truth rather than seeing the truth and then punishing ourselves because we don't like what the truth is. So this is the practice. And once we're getting fairly good at that, then we can go back into the world and treat the world the way that we've been treating our own mind with friendliness and honesty. And when we can have both friendliness and honesty, that's Sangha, which is the real triple gem. You have to have all three. You have to have the Buddha mind. You have to have the understanding of how to get to that Buddha mind with the Dhamma. And then we have to practice being in that state of mind around other people so that we invite them into that state of mind also. Or better still, um, let us say, ride piggyback on the fact that the, the people that I choose to be around already have clean minds and they can help me clean mine even further. As an example of that is people who really want to learn how to play chess well should play people who are better than they are. Because if they keep playing with the same people that they lose, that they win against, they're not going to learn very much because that guy is not learning. No, you got to go play people better than you are. And so it's better to hang out with people who are uh, of wiser mind. Congratulations for joining our Zoom call here. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So a question about that. So, okay. you know, the kind and nurturing approach to mind is hey you're great just the way you are you know so you know now there's also the skill development piece which is i know i can i'm 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 great that i can get even better you know well so, i can't pick myself up yeah it's okay that i fell and got my face in the mud let me pick myself up dust myself off and i'll keep boogieing down to friendship road again that's right. the example that i use over right. and over again we're going to wind up in the gutter of our own mind Right, but the reason I bring that up is it's a delicate balance between being nurturing and kind to oneself and you're fine just the way you are and also having the approach of I want to be even better. You know, I want to both, doesn't it? Yes, it takes that truth. You do have to see what's going on. Right. And, and so very, that's the practice of Anapanasati is really investigate that. But as we do it, we change that unhappy, unwholesome thoughts into wholesome thoughts and congratulate ourselves for being able to see the crap rather than feeling bad because we saw it. Right. That's it. That's the two wings of the bird. Happiness and uh, friendliness along with honesty. And growth. Well, you know. that's how the bird flies. That's the growth is the bird can fly because it's flapping both wings. Right, but then here's a tricky element, is the growth also requires, or maybe not requires, but often includes a little bit of an element of hope. 
right? If I learn from this mistake and now I'm going to be even better next time. So that implies a next time, right? A seagull learning to fly only needs to see other seagulls can fly. Your seagull is talking about waddling around with all of the other waddling around seagulls, hoping that maybe someday somebody can fly. Sure. No, you need to be around people who know how to soar. And I've been doing this so long, my mind is sore now. <laughs> sure. So actually, this is my earlier question from 10 minutes ago. I wrote it down. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah. Enjoy the laughs. Enjoy the laughs. I, I have not told that joke in years, not that way ever. <laughs> yeah. so, so what are your thoughts on, you know, eagerness in the Dhamma and how it develops and, you know, why it tends to connect more? It develops with... through success, mm. through knowledge, not through faith, not through hope. Right. It develops as a skill through actually practicing that skill. Hoping to learn to play the piano does not help very much. Practicing the piano helps a lot. Enjoying practicing the piano helps a lot. Right, totally. And, you know, I've noticed, you know, with, with some of your students, you know, some take on extremely eagerly, you know, like, like Parker here, you know, and, and others, you know, they take it more into their own lives, like say Eric, for example, who but don't like necessarily do a very deep, you know, super deep pseudo study, but really, and I'm like that too, where I take it into my life, you know, but I'm not on the Discord or the site, the Skype, you know, posting all this. Well, when you have those that are eager for knowledge, we might as well give them the suttas. Otherwise, they'll be reading Mad Magazine and not understanding it either. <laughs> right, but, but it's interesting. That then, in fact, Mad know. Magazine is wonderful, Dom, if you know how to read. <laughs> right, right. But say, take like, you know, Eric, for example, and he chose... Which Eric? I've got four of them. The Eric Zorer, Eric Z. Okay. All you right. Know, yes. So, so he went to go live in the Watts, you know, and for him, that experiential knowledge and eagerness was more important, you know, than sitting and, and, and although he does listen to the pseudoscience audiobook, but then sitting and like writing about it and this kind of a thing, like some other people in the group do, right? You know, I'd mm -hmm. say for me, my most important Dhamma practice has been in my personal relationships. And that's what I've really been playing with. You know, ah, but that's what we've been saying all along. Here's here. Let me let me sum that up. If we are practicing with each other correctly, with honesty and friendship, that gains us the very skills that we had could have gotten if we were off in the corner practicing meditation correctly. Right. We're actually practicing meditation while we're dealing with others. If you're dealing with others that are already skilled at that. In other words, it's not a good idea to go practice your Dhamma at the bar or at the football match or in the police station. No, you got to have those skills before you go in there. OK, but if you're in the Sangha, if you're in the Wat, that means that now you can gain uh, a quite a lot of advantage by being around other nobles, that their behavior and their stuff wears off on you. And this is a major way that Buddhism has been taught in Thailand for centuries. 
that 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 the the meditation practice is much more of a uh, let us say it's a it's not unheard of. Bhikkhu Buddhadasa actually recommends it. But what has happened with Western Buddhism is they think that that's the whole show. That's all there is, is this practice of meditation. To where, in fact, I would have said years ago, I stopped being a meditation teacher and started being a Dhamma teacher. Mm. But in recent times, uh, and you guys know this, and this is something for Daniel to understand, is I don't teach Dhamma anymore. I teach Sangha. That's what I teach. If you practice Sangha correctly, you don't need meditation. Because Sangha, when it's practiced correctly, is a better practice. Mm. Because you don't make so many mistakes because you're watching more closely because you're around people who are watching you more closely than you know how to do yourself. When you understand that people are really listening and really watching what you're doing and are picking apart every gesture that you make and every word you use, you start to be very careful of what you're saying. But when you're off in the woods by yourself doing a Dhamma practice, people get really sloppy. They're not paying much attention. Right. You know, it's funny, right? The actual (laughs) practice of it is best done in the best environment. And if you don't have a Sangha to practice in, Hmm. then off in the corner is your better uh, choice. Hmm. But the worst choice of all is to just be off in ordinary society, hoping that something better is going to happen when you know that nothing's better going to happen. <laughs> right. But you can bring it into your close relationships, like, say, with my parents, you know, or my girlfriend. If you're already developing your practice on your own, then you can bring it into them. But you're not expected to get it from them if they don't have it. No, you no, got to go get point. it. <laughs> no, that's the point is teaching it to them because I've already gotten it. Right. Teaching it to them will help you learn it better. That's what I'm making the point of also, is the right. ones who already have it are honing their skills when they're teaching it because they're picking yeah. up on things that even the guy who's doing it doesn't pick up on. Right. No, so totally. all of this kind of stuff snowballs together or what you would call positive feedback loop as opposed right. to the negative feedback loop that we have in society. To where everybody out there is helping everybody else feel bad and making a profit off of it. Now we're in the process of helping everybody else feel good and we don't need a profit because we're already happy without one. Right. And wow, how upside down that is to our society. <laughs> Certainly. Right. It, it, you know, right, Daniel. Well, hang on. Hang on, Robert. Uh, Daniel, let's give him a chance. Hmm. Yeah, I don't have much to say, you know, like since like last August, I would do like an hour of meditation or practice, just sit down for an hour. And, uh, you know, I did like breathing or I did like focus on body sensations or or stuff like that. And now I've cut it down to just like 10 minutes where I just try to be present. Uh like totally present and and not breathing any when did you give up your hour and why why did you give up your hour practice and start doing it for 10 minutes uh, just time but okay. i did notice good results from the hour all right normally the human attention span is not an hour it yeah. can be increased to be an hour 
But uh, the things that will help increase it to be an hour is enthusiasm. And most Westerners, when they practice meditation, they don't do it with a hot diggity dog. I'm going to do this for an hour. Just watch this breath and watch that one. No, they go into it already wanting something out of it. And so they start cataloging how long I sit. In fact, how Mm -hmm. long does I sit or how many hours or how many years I've sat is actually part of the competition of Western Buddhism. (laughs) Another thing is I, I, I ended up how yeah. happy are you? Go ahead. I ended up being kind of one of the reasons I stopped doing an hour is because I was like, wow, I'm throwing away a whole hour every day. And I was like unsure, okay, which like technique should I pursue? In other words, like, you oh, walked away from your meditation not saying, wow, that was a delicious hour. I should have more of those. You're walking away from your meditation thinking that you're wasting your time. Yeah, or worried that I might be. That's just an attitude. Look at the fact that your attitude is harming you. All you have to do is change your attitude to, wow, that was great. But then you have to change that attitude moment by moment every time you think of it. Wow, it's great. And then you let it, wow, be great. And after doing that for an hour, you walk away from that hour with, wow, that was really great. But you're not doing that. You're moment by moment wasting your time. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> with us wasting my time. Yeah. <laughs> you know why I know about that? Then they're done that. I wasted 10 years of meditation. Hardcore. Wow. Going all the way to India and sitting at the guru's feet. Staying with Gawanka for three years. I really was a hardcore meditator. So why didn't that work? Well, it doesn't work for anybody. You go into that kind of thing, wanting something out of it, and you never get anything out of it. As JFK once said, or something like this, don't ask what your meditation will do for you. Ask what you're going to do to your meditation. And your meditation is not giving you what you want because you want something out of it rather than looking at what you're putting into it, which is the right effort. Mm. Now, next point is, is that the uh, the human mind really doesn't have that kind of a long attention span. So it's better to break that hour up into short sits so that you can actually get yourself into a really, really good state in 10 minutes. That would be the kind of goal. And you would practice that six times a day so that after a few weeks, you should be able to get yourself into a really, really good state six times a day. And then it'll start to linger and build. And as it lingers and builds, you can go about your day. But now you're adding that Dhamma to to your daily practice that you have been practicing in seclusion for an hour, six times for 10 minutes a day. Yeah. So that's a way of improving. And what does that mean? That means that we keep remembering to change our thoughts into wholesome, happy thoughts. Well, I can do this. Wow, this feels good. Oh, this real this breath is a really, really nice breath. Wow, I really like this breath. Oh, I can't do without that breath stuff. Can't get enough of it. Then in fact, if I didn't breathe, I'd die. I think you would too. So it's really beginning, uh, or it's then a good point to recognize that our life depends upon our breathing. Why can't we enjoy it? It's life-giving. 
it's actually quite delicious. If you don't like taking the next breath, wait for five minutes until you think you might like it and then take it and see if you like it. Or you could take it now and recognize, oh, this is a really nice breath. And this is a really nice breath. That is a wholesome thought. And as I breathe in, I breathe in joy. And as I breathe out, I relax, relax. And so that's the practice of Anapanasati, is to remember to take a long, deep breath and to remember to relax the body. But in order to relax the body, you got to learn the body. And so it's good to investigate the body. And when you investigate the body, then you learn it fairly well. And basically what you're learning is how to relax by finding the tensions that are there and relaxing them. Here's an example of that. Hold your hand out and just hold it still. And see how long you can just hold it. Move it away from the front of the camera and hold it to the side so I can see your face. There you go. And just hold it there. And hold it. Do you begin to feel any tension? Can you hold it there relaxed or is the hand beginning to get tension in it? So far, so good. Okay. So that's the whole point, though, is, is that if you keep focused on, is there any tension in the hand? Then even talking about it and thinking about that, the hand continues to relax. If I said just to hold your hand there and now we go talk about something altogether different and you're not actually watching the hand, it'll actually get tensed up. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's an important um, thing to recognize is that the body tenses up when we're holding it still. And so now we recognize, well, it tenses up in all kinds of ways and places. I should be aware of when the body is tensing up. I should be aware of the anxiety. I should be aware of holding it still versus just allowing it to be there still. So there's a completely different way. And by the way, I tricked you by using the word hold. Because the word hold is where we get the tension. Well, you just open your hand. And then you just open your hand and now there's no tension because you don't have to hold it. (laughs) And so this is the idea of the body, learning to relax the body by noticing the body. And we and that will help us to learn to see the mind and the tensions that cause the body tensions. And so we can relax it all together. We relax the mind, we relax the feelings, relax the body, and there we go with all the satipatthana. Just relaxing all of it. But when uh, individual teachers focus on one individual thing as if they're at the hallmark, a lot of people think that it's a different practice. It's almost like everybody's got a chapter of the book and they're running around holding their chapter up saying, I've got a new meditation practice. <laughs> I wouldn't you just got one chapter of the book I know about. <laughs> and so it becomes a complete practice where we can, be, can become completely relaxed. And so I offer you that change in the style of practice is first off, stop wanting something from the meditation practice being okay without whatever you thought that you would want, including magical powers, 
and cities and reincarnation experiences or any kind of experience in meditation. In fact, that's a quite a big danger. When students have an experience in meditation, then they go lusting after that experience next time and they can't have it. So in fact, maybe they were clinging so hard, so tough, so long that they got a uh, they got tired and so they relaxed and then they had an experience. But they forget all about that. Oh, it was because I relaxed after all of that work. And so now they try to have that experience again by going and working and working and working and working. When they get tired, they don't stop relaxing. They keep working and working. And now they don't have that relaxation experience at all. When all we need to do is just start having that understanding that, oh, we're just relaxing here. That's all we're doing. We're just being friendly and honest and looking at what's going on. And when we see a pile of crap, we throw it out. And when we keep throwing out every pile of crap that comes into the mind, guess what? We begin to clean up our mind. And so that's the real teaching of the Buddha, is the cleaning up of the mind, the dukkha, dukkha, naroda. Just be satisfied right now, and then you're out of your dissatisfaction. That is not something that's going to happen in the future. Western Buddhism thinks enlightenment is something out in the future. No, enlightenment is waking up right now to, oh, that's it. I don't have to do anything. And now you're enlightened in that moment. And then you say, wait a minute, I got work to do. And now you're not enlightened. Wait a minute, I got a work to do. I've got to go get enlightened. And you'll never get enlightened because you're giving yourself work to do to get something that you already have. So that's a fairly good introduction per day. What do you think about what we're teaching here, Daniel? Uh, I think it's um, I think it's kind of a breath of fresh air, you know, because I've been stuck on these paradigms of like uh, like Daniel Ingram's Ingram's book, you know, as him. I think you talk with him. You did some interviews with him. Yeah, he's a good friend of mine. Yeah. I like to tease him about this. Yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's all obsessed with mystical experiences and awakenings and enlightenments and attainments and all that stuff. And I guess the past six months, I've just kind of tortured myself over all that. And also wondering. Yeah, but look how happy he is. He's happy. Yeah, so don't don't run it wrong. I mean, he's okay. He's a good guy. Yeah, he just thinks because he went through hell to get uh, get tired of going through hell, that everybody has to go through hell in order to get tired of going through hell. He doesn't understand that I can look at hell from a distance and get already. I don't want to go there. Yeah. So it's a better idea to take a look at the rabbit hole before you crawl down it. Because once you're in the habit hole, you think that it was necessary to go down that rabbit hole in order to get out of it when you didn't have to go down it in the first place. <laughs> but that's um, your Western Buddhism for you. And all of them catch that disease. In fact, they brought that disease with them into their meditation practice in the beginning. And it stays there oh so long. That's the problem. That's the that's uh, wanting the magical powers and the reincarnation and the experiences because everybody is looking for proof for what they believe in. And the real thing to do is just to stop believing in a bunch of crap, but just enjoy your moment like it is. 
You don't need a mystical experience to have a mystical experience. Not having a mystical experience, now that's a mystical experience for you. <laughs> Just to be in the present, wow, this is so great. Nothing mystical about here at all. Nothing mystical at all. Absolutely everything is real and it's marvelous. Robert, what you got? Uh, a well-known Zen quote. Before Zen, mountains are mountains, rivers are rivers, clouds are clouds. In the middle of Zen, mountains are no longer mountains, rivers are no longer rivers, clouds are no longer clouds. After Zen, mountains are mountains again. Rivers are rivers, clouds are clouds. Been nice. There, done that. Yep. Been there, done that. Yes, that's right. And what is the clouds are not clouds and the mountains are not mountains? Is when people go on that mystical experience of warning the clouds to not be clouds and warning the mountains to not be mountains and warning the rivers to not be rivers. And when they really want and want and want and want and want long enough, they get tired of it and recognize it doesn't matter how bad I want that mountain to not be a mountain. It's still going to be a mountain. Why don't I enjoy the mountain like a mountain? But most people spend 50 years wanting the mountain to not be a mountain. They write books about it. <laughs> they call them Dhamma books. <laughs> so let's go ahead and finish up this call, uh, Daniel. Um, what do you think? Uh, the way that I teach actually has to do with I'm looking for students who are willing to commit to a practice and to continue to call for that friendliness and that honesty over and over and over again until you get it, you get full of it. And when you yeah. had it up to here with me, then you are me and we are Sangha and we're our friends together. Uh -huh. So I invite you to keep calling and keep calling and keep calling. Yeah, I'll be are back. You up to that. All right. Well, when are you going to call next time? Uh, maybe tomorrow, maybe the next day. Well, uh, I would recommend uh, twice a week. Okay. I could do that. Okay, so the day after tomorrow, or the day after that will be good. And as you can tell with Robert, he and I have known each other for a long time. <laughs> and Parker, even longer. He just okay. sits there and nods and smiles because he's heard all of this stuff before. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Daniel, thanks so much for calling. Thanks for having me. It's great talking to you. Nice great. to meet you all. Great to meet you, Daniel. Thanks for hanging out with us, Parker and Robert. I appreciate you staying. That oh, was good fun, as always. I'll see you there tomorrow. Bye-bye. All right, we'll see Daniel, you tomorrow. I'll add you to the Sangha group. I just sent you a contact request. And I'll add you oh, to the yes. Join the, oh, I forgot to say that. Yes, please join the Sangha group. It's at um, Eastern time is 10 p.m. And so on West Coast time, that would be what, uh, Parker? Exactly. You're in West Coast. It's 9 p.m. Eastern and 6 p.m. West, West Coast. 6 p.m. So if you can't get there by 6 p.m., join in. It'll be there for an hour or two or three. Uh, Sounds good. Oh, Sandra wants to say good night. Very good. Sandra. Hi. Good night. <laughs> yes, we'll we'll talk later. Bye. I hear the entire um, session. It was good. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
Okay. And there right. <laughs> bye, guys. Okay, okay bye bye. And so, yeah. All right. Take care. <laughs> Daniel, we'll see you soon. Right, Parker, see you thank soon. you so much. Everybody, this has been great. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Right. Bye. -bye. Bye.